This morning, we will continue making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and the sermon will cover verses 26 through 38 in chapter 1. So Luke 1, 26 through 38. If you're using the Pew Bible, I believe we're still on page 855. And as you turn there, as you open up your Bible or the Pew Bible, I want to share some news with you regarding Disciples Church in Tirana, Albania. Now, the insert in the bulletin gives you more details, but I'm just going to summarize and, and add a few uh, things that I, I'd like to say as well. But if you want to read more, please do read the, the insert in the bulletin. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we have this unique gospel partnership with a church in Tirana, Albania that's called Disciples Church. We've been with them before they even had their first public worship service. Uh, we know Pastor Erlene, who has pastored the church from the beginning. Uh, we've walked with this church for six years, and we've been a part of almost every single major milestone in the life of this little, precious, beautiful church in Albania. Albania is a country where communism ruled and wiped out uh, religion. There were Christians. Uh, his, uh, church history says that Paul came there, and not even just church history. Scripture tells us that Paul was there. Church history tells us that Titus was martyred in Albania. Uh, it is a place that is ripe for gospel presence and in need of local churches that proclaim God's word, and Disciples Church is one of them. Uh, so we've walked through a lot of major milestones in the life of this church, and we're going to be walking through another major milestone in the life of Disciples Church because uh, there will be a pastoral transition. Pastor Erlene, who is a dear friend of many in this church, he's come here, he's visited here for lengthy periods of time. Uh, he's been in many of our homes and community groups. Uh, he put in for... Uh, a program that will allow him and his wife and his, his infant daughter, Iris, to become citizens eventually of Canada. His brother and his sister-in-law and their children, as well as his parents, are now in Canada. And uh, they've, been, uh, they've been contemplating, praying about whether or not the Lord is leading them to follow and be with their family there. And uh, they put in, they were accepted, they were surprised by that acceptance, and after weeks of prayer and conversations, they've decided to, to, to move to Canada. Uh, we do, praise God, have two men that we've already identified long before this as future elders, pastors in the church. Uh, one is Marcel. He was one of the first converts in the church six years ago or five years ago or so. And many of us know him. He's, been, he's preached in the church. He's a godly man. He's very gifted at, at teaching. He knows theology. He was actually hired by some churches to translate good resources into Albanian because they lack good resources in their own language. Uh, another one is a man named Jeff, who is a missionary that was sent out by a church in Milwaukee. Uh, and he's been with his family in the church. And so we're working with them to come up with a plan. It's still in process. But we want to walk alongside of this church. We're not going to abandon them in their time of need. We're going to be more intentional to spend more time and energy and continue supporting them financially and with discipleship. And we're also going to be praying for them this morning, and now you know why. Uh, with that, would all of those who are able please stand for the reading of God's holy word, Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word for God's people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
God, you are indeed our great God, the most high God. There is none like you. Your people have and will continue to gather until Christ returns to praise you, to look to you, to enjoy you, to point each other to you, the great God, the only God who saves. We praise you this morning for all that you are, all that you have done. Father, we thank you for sending your son, for setting out on the plan of redemption before the creation of the world. Before you made us, you set out a plan to bring glory to your name, to save a people, to bring us out of darkness. How sweet it is to know that we are numbered among that people, that we are the privileged, not because of what we have done, but because of what your son has done, that we now, with glad hearts, with words that that are full of meaning and weight, for we mean what we sing, we mean what we pray, we mean what we believe. Jesus is Lord, only he can save, and our trust is in him. How sweet it is to be in the house of the Lord with God's people to delight in you this day. For those that are not delighting in you this morning, who are not Christians, who think this is all garbage and foolishness, Lord, do what you did in our hearts. Overcome their unbelief. Break through the stony ground. Bring life where there is death. Hope where there is hopelessness. God, I pray for those who are delighting in you this day, that you would increase their joy in you, that they would see even more the greatness of Christ, that though they are sinners in need of a Savior, they have indeed a great Savior who has accomplished their redemption. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. We give you thanks for the church and how you use your people to minister to us, to remind us of your promises, to encourage us to walk through the difficult days with us. We give you thanks for your word, for we know Christ through your word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. We know Jesus because of your word. God, we give you thanks for how you've provided for us as a local church, that that we have existed for over 30 years because of your grace, because you have determined to keep us here, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. We give you thanks this morning for corporate worship. God, in in the midst of giving you thanks, we, we, we offer prayers of supplication as well. We pray for those who are struggling, who are suffering, who are grieving, physically going through great turmoil. Our hearts are especially with the Restrepo family as they continue to care for their daughter, Chloe. We praise you for for keeping her alive through the heart transplant that she had when she was a baby and, and sustaining her through all the ups and downs of health issues over the years. And as she continues to go in and out of the hospital and, and be ministered to and antibiotics work and then they don't work and this family clings to, to you, may you sustain them and strengthen them. Yes, we pray for healing for Chloe. At the same time, we pray, Father, that, that you would that you would continue to increase her awareness of your love for her in Christ, that you have indeed already taken care of her greatest problem, her sin problem, in the sending of your son who who bore the wrath that we deserved on the cross so that Chloe and, and everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus would be forgiven and promised life forever in Jesus. We pray for the others who are suffering and battling through cancer, through health issues, May they be refreshed by your word this morning. Give them, we pray, the the energy and the strength to glorify your name, to praise you even in the hardships. Lord, we pray for those who are under your discipline. Your word tells us that you discipline your children, that those who are in Christ when they're being disciplined are are not being condemned. They're not being set aside. You use your discipline. You, You reveal, you expose sin so that that it can be addressed and dealt with to to rescue wayward sinners. And so we pray for those who are in our church and people we love and care about who are under your discipline. We also pray for for those family members and friends and other church members who who love those who who are experiencing this. May they cling to you and, and hold to your promises even as they watch their family or friend go through your discipline, for it is good and it is right, and it shows your fatherly love. And Lord, we pray for Disciples Church, that as they transition from, from 
Pastor Erlene, to, to other godly men who will shepherd their church, that you would strengthen them. That his departure, though it's sad and, and we love him and, and we, we praise you for the way that you have worked in his life and you've used him to shepherd this church and to do great work in, in Albania for your glory and for the good of these people, that, that you would strengthen even this, the church in this season, that you would raise up even more godly men to replace Erlene, that, that many men will be trained and prepared to, to lead Disciples Church and to be sent out by Disciples Church to, to plant other gospel-proclaiming, Bible-teaching churches. We pray that you would raise up more members in the church to disciple one another and, and to be evangelistic like Erlene, walking the streets of Tirana, handing out flyers, inviting them to English classes where they will translate from, from English into Albanian and Albanian into English your word, your precious word, the gospel. We pray that you would draw the members closer together in this time of struggle, that they would see the, the greatness of, of the gospel and, and be sustained by, by you, the God who keeps his people. And we do pray for Elind and Claudie and, and Iris, that as they, they struggle through this transition as well, as they, they believe you're leading them to Canada and, and they love the people and their brothers and sisters in the church, that, that you would you would confirm, you would lead, you would provide what is needed for this move. And now, Lord, bless us with your word. Apply your word in, in the way that only you can to every single heart. Those who are in unbelief, reveal your son to them through the preaching of your word. Those who are weak this morning, refresh and strengthen them with your word. And those who are delighting in you, increase their joy in Jesus, we pray. Amen. A miracle is when God acts in the world to accomplish his will in such a way that, that breaks or overcomes the laws of nature. If you're driving in a parking lot and you're, you're going to be late for class or late for work, there's no spots, and you, and you pray, Lord, open up a parking spot. And, and as you do that, you, know, you, you see somebody moving out of that parking spot and it's perfect timing where you just pull right in and you make it to that class, you make it to work just on time. That's not a miracle. That, that, that's not the definition of a miracle. A miracle is when God works in such a way that it overcomes or breaks the laws of nature. Now, providence describes how God works in the world within the laws of nature to accomplish his will. And so if that parking lot scenario is there again, that would fall under the category of providence. God and his, his grace to you in that moment heard your prayer and decided that it would be best for you to get to class or get to work on time. Sometimes he doesn't answer that prayer, right? And, and then you learn a lesson. Uh, leave earlier. Don't wait to the last minute. Don't procrastinate. Well, in this morning's passage, we find God accomplishing his will by both providence and miracles. Friends, there's, there's no getting around it. Biblical, historic, Orthodox Christianity affirms the miraculous. That God's miracles, as recorded in Scripture, are true. It affirms what the angel Gabriel tells Mary in verse 37, that nothing, not even a miracle like a virgin conceiving a child who has no earthly father, is impossible with God. I am convinced that in order to be a gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-following, Bible-believing Christian, really just a Christian, a true Christian, you and I must believe what the Bible plainly teaches, that nothing is impossible with God, that God is able to do the miraculous. If we try to remove the miracles in the Bible, either by redefining them or outright denying them, we will end up with moralism. The message of the Bible becomes, be good and do good. And that's not the gospel. That's not good news for sinners because God's word tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so be good and do good is not good news. If that's a summary of the message of the Bible, that is not good news for us. You see, the Bible also tells us that we are born sinners and we choose to sin, that we are so far from God and so utterly unable to be good enough or to do enough good that we cannot pay for our sin, that we cannot on our own stand before a perfectly good, holy, and sinless God, that we cannot save ourselves by our works or by avoiding sin, and that because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. 
we deserve hell. And so what we need is a miracle. We need God to overcome the laws of nature. We need him to miraculously save us. And the good news is that in and through Jesus Christ's birth, his sinless life, his sin-atoning death, his life-giving resurrection, that's just what God has done, and it's a miracle. And so this is why denying the miraculous will lead to someone denying the very gospel of Jesus Christ. I understand that to the world, the Bible is foolishness. Does not the Bible itself tell us that the world will respond to the Bible that way? And here's, here's the truth. If you end up denying the miraculous, you will end up denying the gospel. And there is no other gospel that can save you, that can save me. It is the only gospel that can save us. Of course, throughout history, especially modern history, people have and they continue to deny the miracles in the Bible. A few years ago, around Easter, I watched one of those network specials on Jesus the world loves to make money off Christians. The world doesn't mind creating something uh, that has some good theology in it if it can get some money from us. Sometimes we forget that. Now there, there's a business going on for Christians, run by non-Christians, to appeal to us. And so this was one of those specials that some non-Christians got together and said, hey, it's getting close to Easter. Why don't we put something together and, and get the Christians likely to watch it? And so what was I doing? I was watching one of them. And, and in this special, they interviewed various scholars and experts. Some of them were Christians, and they gave good biblical answers to the questions they were being asked. And others were atheists and agnostics or skeptics who undermined the truthfulness of the Bible. And what especially grieved me is there were some who professed to be Christians, and they also were undermining the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. But one of the non-Christians was asked to explain how Jesus was able to walk on water. Uh, because here he is walking on water, the disciples are there, and if it didn't really happen, if, if they didn't really believe it, well, they wouldn't have died for it. And so they're, they're working through that with a, a skeptic, a, an expert in these things that, that didn't believe it was a, a real miracle. And this expert suggested that Jesus may have used a ramp to trick the disciples. That somehow, you know, in the middle of the night or something, uh, he, he built some ramp that he could put into the sea, and, and then he, he lined up the boat just right where he could step off the boat or came off the shore, and, and that's what he would, I just, just picture Jesus lugging around this ramp, you know, to, to trick people. Basically, this expert was saying that Jesus was a lying illusionist. I recently heard about someone else proposing that the miracle recorded for us in Matthew 14 of Jesus feeding over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish was, was not actually a miracle in which Jesus miraculously multiplied the bread and the fish to feed the people, but instead that Jesus persuaded the people in the crowd who had food to share their food with those who didn't have any. This heretical view makes the miracle not a display of the divinity of Christ that shows our need for Christ, that he is the bread of life who pr provides for his people what they need to nourish not only their body but their soul. It, it says, no, that's not what this miracle is all about. It's about really Jesus' ability to persuade people and the importance of sharing with others. Scripture certainly teaches us morals. Like we should share with those in need. That's taught in Scripture. But the miracles recorded for us in Scripture are not meant to teach us morals. They're meant to show, display the power of our sovereign God who can create something out of nothing, who speaks things into existence. They're meant to, especially in the Gospels, show us that Jesus is God, that he can overcome the laws of nature. They're also meant to show us that, that we are not God. I can't create five loaves of bread. Uh, I can't I can't feed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. I'm not God. You're not God. We are creatures created for his glory. We are reliant on his grace. And the miracles help us to see that, to remember that. Who is this Jesus? He is God. A famous denier of the miracles in the Bible was Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States of America. Now, there's debate about this. There are some Christians who believe he was a Christian. Uh, I, have, I have come to the conclusion I don't think he was a Christian, and so that's my vantage point in this, but I understand some might, might think otherwise. Uh, I believe he was not a Christian, but a deist. 
that he believed there was a God who created the world, but that this God was not a personal God like the God of the Bible who acts in human history. Jefferson's God was, was more like a watchmaker who created the world, then wound up the clock, and then just let it go and watched what happened. Jefferson's God was more like this. And so Jefferson had a real problem with the miracles in the Bible. He didn't believe them. That was his problem. He rejected them. He said they were myths. They, they weren't true. And to reconcile this with what he saw as great wisdom and the importance of the morality in the New Testament, he decided to make his own version of the Bible. He carefully cut out all the miracles and any other parts that he didn't like, and he kept the rest. He created what is now referred to as the Jefferson Bible, and it was given to incoming congressmen and senators as a gift, this Jefferson Bible that lacked whatever Jefferson said wasn't real or true, and it was passed on. And I believe there's one senator that still does this. He sends all the incoming congressmen and senators this Jefferson Bible. Now, the details surrounding Jesus' conception seemed impossible to Jefferson then, and they seem impossible to many today. But we will focus on three truths in this passage that remind us that nothing is impossible with God. That if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart full of repentance and faith, then, then you too will say, in the end, nothing is impossible with God. And so this, this sermon is meant to draw this truth out before you and, and encourage your heart to believe it. Now the first truth is, is that God is able to cause a baby to be conceived without an earthly father. This certainly displays the reality that God is able to do the impossible. We're talking about the virgin conception. In other places in the Bible, we learn about God miraculously causing women who were barren or older and far past childbearing age to conceive and give birth to a child. There's Sarah, Abraham's wife, who in her old age, God caused to conceive and give birth to a son who they named Isaac. He has a special place in the, in the ancestry of the Israelites and by faith in our own history of redemption. There's Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, who we read about last Sunday in the verses that precede this morning's. In Luke 1.7, we're told that about Elizabeth and Zechariah, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Then we read in verses 24 and 25, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth had a boy. We know him to be the great John the Baptist who would prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus Christ. They were both miracles. God overcame their infertility and older age to, to give them each a son. But in both cases, God used normal relations between them and their respective husbands to produce a miracle baby. Now, this passage tells us that with Jesus, it's different. It's always different with Jesus. His conception is a greater miracle than Sarah's conceiving of Isaac or Elizabeth's conceiving of John the Baptist because with Mary, the Lord didn't just overcome her barrenness or her old age. She was young. The Lord overcame her being a virgin. She had never been intimate with Joseph, who she was betrothed to, or with any other man. A virgin with child. Now, how did God accomplish this even greater miracle so that Jesus had an earthly mother in Mary, but no earthly father? How did God overcome the natural laws of biology and procreation and cause Mary to be pregnant with Jesus while still being a virgin? Well, Mary seems to have the same question. Now, when we compare what we see here with what Zechariah's response is, we, it seems very similar. It's not. The Lord knows her heart. She's asking this question in faith. Zechariah asked it doubting God's promise. She's asking in faith. And she asks in verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? The answer the angel gives in verse 25 is, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, what is described here is not physical intimacy between God and Mary. In his commentary on this passage, pastor and theologian R. Kent Hughes writes, All leading scholars agree that there are no sexual overtones whatsoever. The word overshadow gives us the proper understanding because it is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe God's presence in the sanctuary 
and in the New Testament for his overshadowing presence at the transfiguration where the cloud of glory overshadowed our Lord and his apostles. And so it is the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary, causing her to conceive Jesus without an earthly father. It is the work of the third person of the Trinity. He was present in Christ's conception in a real, unique, and powerful way that we're told is similar to how God's presence was really uniquely and powerfully in the temple and in the tabernacle. If you've ever read the Old Testament, these pictures of God's presence dwelling with God's people in a unique way through the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple and then ultimately in Christ, you get a sense of the power of what was going on in the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. We're also told that it was similar to God's presence at the transfiguration when the glory of Jesus overwhelmed and amazed the disciples. The Holy Spirit was present. He is the one that brought this baby into existence. That the Holy Spirit is the cause of Jesus' conception should not be surprising to us because Scripture frequently connects the Holy Spirit with life. We see this in John 6, 63, where Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Spirit gives life. Life comes from the Holy Spirit. We also see this in Romans 8, 10 and 11, where we read, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. How does life come to the dead? Through the Spirit. He brings life. Every true Christian has experienced the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit in the new birth, regeneration, when God, by his sovereign grace, caused you to be born again. It was a miracle. You do not bring yourself to life. Dead people don't respond to the gospel. They need life. Those who are alive, who by God's grace have been brought to life, who have experienced a miracle, the miracle of regeneration, they're the ones who respond to the gospel. Jesus explained this to Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How does one see? How can you even see the kingdom of God? Ruled and, and, and reigned over by the king. You must be born again. Nicodemus understood the power and the depth with what Jesus was saying, that it was a mir- this would be a miracle. And so Nicodemus said to him in verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In all of this, we see that it is the Holy Spirit who creates life. He creates new life in dead sinners, causing them to be born again. Once you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit. He brought you to life. And so if you're a Christian, you've experienced this to some degree as well. Of course, fully regeneration, but you've experienced something unique. You have experienced the miracle of the new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who created that life, that new life in Mary's womb. There was no life in her womb. It was impossible. There's no way that a baby could be growing in her womb. And who brought life? The Holy Spirit. So that though she was a virgin, she conceived Jesus. Friends, nothing is impossible with God. He is even able to cause a baby to be conceived without an earthly father. This is your God, Christian. This is your God. May it humble you this morning. Wow! He is the God who brings life where there is no life. This is the God you worship. Nothing is impossible with him. 
Well, all of that brings us to another miracle referenced in this morning's passage that teaches us that, again, nothing is impossible for God. God is able to become a man, the incarnation. Look again at what the angel Gabriel announces to Mary in verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Just as with Elizabeth's son, the angel informs Mary that her son is going to be great. That's good news for any parent. You're going to have a great son. And we're not talking about he's going to be really good at sports, he's going to be really wealthy, and he's going to make your life easier. He's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. But Mary hears that her son will be even greater. And it's not even going to be close, because her son would also be the son of the Most High, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Mary is told that she would be the mother of the long-promised king, who would be a descendant of Israel's great king, David, but that he would be a greater king. For David only sat on that throne for for a short time. This king is going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. It will never end. Gabriel's words were an announcement from heaven that God was now, after all of these years, fulfilling the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. It was a messianic prophecy referred to as the Davidic covenant. God had said to David, you will have a descendant, and that descendant will sit on your throne forever, and his kingdom will never end. And of course, that descendant is Jesus. Mary would have been very familiar with this passage. And in those dark days, the days of Herod, when the Romans ruled over God's people, uh, the, their king was a puppet king, not even truly a Jew who, who, who stole from the Israelites. A lot of people that were faithful Jews would have been praying for God to send that king. Luke tells us later in chapter 2 about an old man named Simeon who was one of those praying that God would do just that. He was praying in the temple day after day after day, waiting for the Lord's Christ, the consolation of Israel, the Lord's salvation, to come to rescue Israel. And he was in the temple the day that Mary and Joseph came to, to, to the temple to dedicate their son. And he saw Jesus And when he saw Jesus, his response was, I'm ready to die, God. Here he is, the Lord's Christ, the consolation of Israel. He knew that this little baby boy would save God's people. Now at this time, in this passage, Mary didn't completely understand the angel's announcement. We hear that she treasured these things up in her heart over and over again as she's getting these glimpses of the greatness of of her son and who he will be. She didn't know that her son would assume the throne by dying on the cross to pay for our sins and that he would bring all who repent of their sin and trust in him into his kingdom, a kingdom that would not ever end, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. She, She wasn't able to connect all the dots, but one day she would. She would be there when her son, this promised King, this Messiah of God's people, was there hanging on the cross. She saw it all. She was there crying, grieving the death of her son, seeing him in pain, confusion, wrestling with it all, battling with, uh, but the angel said, and and what about all the miracles? And, And yet believing, trusting in the Lord's promised one. One day she would come to see and understand like we do. And as the Gospel of Luke unfolds, Luke makes it clear and clear that Jesus is a king like no other. For he is God in human flesh. He is, as Matthew tells us in the opening chapter of his Gospel, Emmanuel, which means God with us. If the baby conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit was not both God and man, then we would still be in need of a Savior, a Rescuer, a Redeemer. As question 21 in the New City Catechism states, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. He had to be God and he had to be man. This is why the miracle of the incarnation was essential. Why without it, there is no gospel. Because without the incarnation, Jesus couldn't have lived a sinless, righteous life as a human. And and if he didn't do that, then then he, 
He couldn't have died in our place on the cross to pay for our sin, being our sin-atoning substitute. And if he didn't really die as a human, then his body couldn't really be raised from the dead. You see, if there's no incarnation, there is no atonement, no propitiation, no resurrection, no justification, no sanctification, no future glorification. It's all lost. We have no gospel. And so this is why without the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation, we're dead in our sins. Now we're going to come back to the doctrine of the incarnation often in the coming weeks as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. But today I, I want your mind to linger on this. God took on flesh and entered into his own creation. He condescended. The Son, who always was God, always is God, and remained truly God, added to himself, his personhood, humanity. A real body. He grew in a womb. Was, was, was just like us. He, he went through, through the birthing process. He was raised by a mom. He, he had a family. He, he stubbed his toe. He, he went through hardships. He had runny noses. Bloody noses as he, as he, just like a boy, ran around and played. God became a man. It's a miracle. It's amazing. Linger on it. Nothing is impossible with God. He can even add to his divinity a humanity in one person. We can't totally wrap our minds around it. But it's a miracle. It breaks natural law. And it's another example to us this morning that nothing is impossible with God. And now we come to a third and final truth found in this passage. Though it does not fall into the category of a miracle like the first two, but into the category of God's providence, it still does show us that nothing is impossible with God. It is that God is able to use the least to accomplish his great redemption plan. This is a pattern throughout the scriptures. God often uses the weak, the lowly, the humble, the little, the the ones who the world says are foolish and dumb to accomplish important tasks in redemption history. And in this morning's passage, we see this in Mary. How encouraging for us, church. How wonderful to linger on this morning. In so many ways, Mary was among the least. She did not live in a big, important city like Jerusalem. She was from a a small little village called Nazareth. If we were to do a comparison to today, we we might think of Jerusalem like New York City and Nazareth being like some tiny town in Wisconsin that no one else has ever heard of except if you've lived there. You know, one of those towns where maybe you kind of have heard of it because you drove through it on the way up north one time. You meet somebody, you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. I, I don't know where that is. Is that north? Yeah, everything's pretty much north, right? You just kind of go with that. What? Oh, I've never heard of it. That was Mary's hometown. Small little place. She, she wasn't in the big city. Back then, it mattered where you were from. And so that, that made Mary one of the least. She was from a small town that didn't matter. Outside of this, you know, Nazareth doesn't come up. After this, it does. Mary was also a very young woman, a teenager, which made her especially vulnerable and insignificant in that society. Some scholars believe that she could have been as young as 12 years old, but certainly a teenager. That made her one of the least. Think about it. Parents with teenagers, do you go to your children for advice, typically your teenager? Are they wells of wisdom? Do most of them exude this this great maturity? Now, some do, praise God. It's a work of grace in their life. But normally, we're the ones giving them wisdom. We're the ones saying, don't do that. Stop hanging out with her. Stop hanging out with him. Sin has grave consequences. Don't do that. I did that when I was young. Don't do that. This is how the Lord disciplined me through that. We're normally the ones that have to help them. They're vulnerable in that way as well. They're prone to, to sins of the youth. Mary was young. She also would have been most likely illiterate. She would have learned the Old Testament scriptures by memorizing them at home from her parents who had memorized them, other siblings who had memorized them. She would have learned them by hearing them read in the synagogue. 
You know, we hear things read. You know, I read the scriptures. We stand for it. Uh, and we just oftentimes tune things out. We're used to holding phones that entertain us, little clips. And, you know, I remember the vines. Eight seconds. So keep your attention. Now, another eight seconds. We're used to that. That's not how it was back then. People listened. Children were taught to sit in worship and pay attention to what was being said. It was important. We're inundated with messages and ideas and thoughts. They didn't have as much of, the, of a problem with that. They paid attention. So Mary is one who paid attention. She knew the promises of God. She memorized scripture just from other people telling her it. And yet in the world's eyes, Mary was unimportant. She was just a poor, young Jewish peasant girl betrothed to marry a Jewish carpenter named Joseph. And yet God chose her among all women to conceive, give birth to, and raise the King of, King and the Lord of, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior. I mean, if I'm picking people, if I'm picking a woman, I, I, I'm probably not picking a woman like Mary. You know, and if, if we're thinking pragmatically, we're going to probably pick somebody with a little bit more seasoning, a little bit more maturity, who's walked with the Lord a little bit more time. Maybe a princess who's, who has all the, the, the blessings and securities that a big city and, and being the, a princess would, would come with. Access to the best doctors, and they weren't very, there weren't a lot of good doctors back then. They didn't know much, but, but I want the best. This is Jesus we're talking about. You know, being in a big city where there were more resources, more food. This is precious cargo, the most precious cargo that she has in her womb. And yet, who does God pick? A young teenager in a small, tiny town that nobody before this had heard of, small in the world's eyes. This is how God so often works. And when he uses people that are great in the world's eyes, you know what he does? He humbles them first. Paul. On, on the road to Damascus, chasing after Christians, wanting to imprison and persecute them, this proud, proud religious man thought he had it all and he knew everything. The Lord humbles him, makes him blind, reliant on others. And in his, in his weakness, then Paul is made strong and he, he, he embraces weakness. God uses the humble, the weak, the lowly. Now, we Protestants do not elevate Mary to the position that the Roman Catholic Church does. We do not, do not view her the same way that our Roman Catholic friends and family members do. We don't believe that she was conceived without sin, what is called the Immaculate Conception. Some Protestants will hear Immaculate Conception and think of Jesus. That, that phrase, that, that idea is actually that, that Mary was conceived without sin. We find no biblical support as Protestants for her having a unique role in Christ's church today. We don't believe that we should ask Mary or any other believers who have died, whether that be Mary or Moses or Grandma or Grandpa, to pray for us because they're in glory now. They're not God. They don't have, uh, they're not omniscient. They don't see all that we are experiencing. They can't hear everything. They're not angels. They're, they're, Believers waiting for the resurrection. They're praising and glorifying the God who made them and their Savior who saved them. And yet, still, Mary is the mother of God, not because Jesus received his deity, his divinity from her, because he didn't. He was always God. She's the mother of, of our Lord because she really bore him. She carried him in, in her womb. She gave birth to him. She raised him. The angel tells Mary that that in all of this, she was favored by God, that by his grace, she has favor with God. And so church, if we want to glorify God, if we want to live our lives for Christ, then Mary is indeed example, an example for us to follow. Not somebody that we ask to pray for us, but somebody to say, look at her life. Look at how she responded to, to God's word. Let's be like her. She shows us what humble obedience and trusting in God will really look like. The angel tells Mary that though she is betrothed to Joseph, that is, she is pledged to be married to him, and, and she's really, religiously, she's already his wife. The only thing that hasn't happened is that she hasn't been intimate with him. And now she hears she's going to be pregnant, and the baby's not Joseph's baby. The baby has no earthly father. The baby is from the Holy Spirit. This was not a safe position for her to be in. It wasn't likely, likely that the people around her would believe the story that she was a virgin pregnant because of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some teenage girl has tried this before. You know, hey, hey, mom, dad, just bear with it. Okay, I know you're going to experience some questioning and all that, but it's from the Holy Spirit. Mary could actually say that, and it was true. 
She hadn't sinned in, in this. This was a work of God. She was favored by God, chosen by God to bear this wonderful blessing, this task of, of being the mother of our Lord. What would those in her small town think? You know how people are in small towns and big towns, little churches and big churches. They talk. What would they say? What about her family? Would she be a disappointment to her father and her mother? Her friends who saw her as this godly young woman had all these hopes and plans for her life, and now here she is pregnant. Now that's something that some of us have had to walk through in this church. A child becomes pregnant. They're not married. She's not married, and now what? We had all these plans and hopes and dreams, and they're either on hold or they're gone. And now God is, is going to use that woman for, for another purpose, to raise that child or to give that child up, to, up for adoption. And, and what about Joseph? Everything in Scripture says this man was a godly man, a man who would trust in the Lord, who was faithful to the Lord. What would he say? What would he think? And yet look at how Mary responds in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. There are some godly, mature, old Christians who do not respond to the word of the Lord like that. This young woman trusted the Lord. She knew the God who saves. She knew this as well. It's not all about Mary. This young believer gets it. It's not, it's not about her. It's all about the Lord. She knows that God doesn't exist for her. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? She knows that she exists for God, that God is not her servant. He's not some genie that she's supposed to, to rub and then get all of her, her wishes answered from. She is a servant of the Lord. This is to be our heart, church, as the Lord speaks to us through his word as he calls us to praise and worship him, to obey him, to delight in his ways, to love him and others, or to follow Mary's example, our heart is to respond to the word of the Lord with the same answer. I am a servant of the Lord. Is that where your heart is this morning? Now, you're not going to be called to give birth to Jesus. One woman had that responsibility from the Lord, but God does have specific responsibilities, tasks for you. It might be to raise godly children. It might be to provide for your family. It might be to remain single for the rest of your life and serve the Lord in missions or uh, as a Sunday school teacher. It might be that uh, you need to bring the gospel into your workplace because you work in a place where there are no other Christians. God has things for you to do, and it's very possible that you try to set aside those things that God has for you. Here should, be, here, here should be your heart's response. I am a servant of the Lord. You want me to preach the gospel to my children? Amen. Let's do this. In faith, I will. They reject it. They, they grow up and they, they turn their backs on the Lord. I will preach the gospel. This is what you have for me, Lord. I am a servant of the Lord. You, you want me to, to work a job that, that is hard and difficult to provide for my family? I will do it. You, you want me to remain single so I can serve you in whatever responsibility and task that you give me? I will do it. You want me to walk through this suffering, to battle cancer in faith, to trust you in times of great difficulty? I will do it. You know why? Because I am a servant of the Lord. Christian, are you humbly obeying Christ's commands? Are you seeking to be a servant of the Lord? Mary is an example for you to follow. And unlike Zechariah, who in the previous passage doubted the Lord's promise, that he would become a father. Mary believed the word of the Lord. It was a miracle, and she believed it would happen. She replies to, to the angel, let it be to me according to your word. I'll take this. I want this. Now, Mary was favored, but because of the Lord's choosing, she would face great struggles, huge difficulties. God's grace, his favor on you does not mean that your life will be easy. It did not mean that for Mary, and it does not mean that for you, Christian. Far from it. And it's important that we Christians remember this, that God's favor in our life does not mean that our lives will be easy, that, that we will always get the promotion, that when we share the gospel with people, after we've prayed and we've read and we've studied and we've said, this is the avenue to walk down to share the gospel, and they slam the door in our face, God has not done us a single thing wrong. Life will be hard following Christ. It's worth it. Grace does not make everything easy. At times, trusting in and following Christ will be hard. 
Which brings us back to what the angel said in verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. Weak, struggling, doubting Christian, hear this this morning. Nothing is impossible with God. You see, it was this phrase that Mary responded to in verse 38 with, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That didn't come from nothing. The angel said, nothing is impossible with God. It was that truth, that truth that caused Mary to respond with, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Verse 37 comes before verse 38. You see, nothing is impossible with God. It is not just a nice slogan. It's not just a title for my sermon. Nothing is impossible with God is fuel for your tank, Christian. It is ammo to fight the fight of faith, Christian. It is medicine for your weary soul. Commenting on the phrase, nothing is impossible with God, J.C. Ryle writes so well, our faith is at best very feeble. Our knowledge at its highest is clouded with much infirmity. Among the many antidotes to a doubting, anxious, questioning mind, few will be found more useful than the one before us, a thorough conviction of the almighty power of God. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Church, God is able to cause a baby to be conceived without an earthly father. That's, that's awesome. God is able to become a man. That's amazing. God is able to use the least, including you, to accomplish his great redemption plan. Nothing is impossible with God. May you believe that this morning. May you have fuel in your tank from it. May you fight the good fight of faith against your sin, clinging to the promises of God with that heartwarming truth. Nothing is impossible with your God. And may it be medicine for your soul. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage as it reveals your power, your greatness, that you are indeed able, more than able to overcome the natural laws that govern your creation, that you are a miracle-working God. You've proved that over and over and over again. And this passage, for those that have eyes to see and ears to hear and, and a heart that is full of faith, reassures them of this truth. Nothing is impossible with you, their great and awesome God. Lord, may we be a church full of Christians who resemble Mary, who in humble obedience trusting in you, say wholeheartedly, I am the servant of the Lord. For the fame of your name, the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.